Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the podcast. Thank you so much for your support of this ministry. We try to do something different with this ministry. We're offering you something that no one else is offering, which is every single day we give you a verse-by-verse exegesis of the gospel reading that you'd hear at today's Mass. So let's jump into today's reading. Luke chapter 6, verse 17, and then verses 20 to 26. Jesus came down with the twelve and stopped at a piece of level ground, where there was a large gathering of his disciples, with a great crowd of people from all parts of Judea, and from Jerusalem, and from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. Fixing his eyes on his disciples, Jesus said, How happy are you who are poor, yours is the kingdom of God. Happy you who are hungry now, you shall be satisfied. Happy you who weep, you shall laugh. Happy are you when people hate you, drive you out, abuse you, denounce your name as criminal on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice when that day comes and dance for joy, for then your reward will be great in heaven. This was the way their ancestors treated the prophets. But alas for you who are rich, you are having your consolation now. Alas for you who have your fill now, you shall go hungry. Alas for you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. Alas for you when the world speaks well of you, this was the way their ancestors treated the false prophets. So some famous verses here, and Luke's version reads a bit differently from Matthew's version, so we'll jump into it. Firstly, what's the context? So Jesus has just called the 12 apostles. And now verse 17, Jesus came down with the 12. So he comes down the mountain with his newly appointed 12 apostles. Luke says he stopped at a piece of level ground. Now, how you interpret this is going to depend on whether you think that what we're about to hear, Jesus' sermon, is it the same as the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew? So what we're going to hear in Luke's version is what scholars call Sermon on the Plain, And there's disagreement about whether this is the same thing as the Sermon on the Mount recorded in Matthew. Certainly there are a lot of similarities. So the majority of scholars do think that this is the same sermon. It's just that Matthew and Luke present it and edit the sermon slightly differently. And that's the view that I'm going to take in this exegesis here. We're going to assume it is actually the same sermon on the same occasion. However, as a Catholic, you're free to believe that Jesus is giving a different sermon here. Certainly he would have given the same sermon on, or certainly same teachings on multiple occasions. So it's possible that this is actually a sermon that he gave more than once and he uh, changed his presentation of it uh, on different occasions. But we're going to assume that this is the same one. Now, given that Luke has just said, though, that Jesus came down to a piece of level ground, whereas Matthew's version of this says that he's on a mountain, It has to be that this is some sort of level ground within the mountains, sort of like a leveling out within the mountains, which you can sort of visualize. Luke says there was a large gathering of his disciples with a great crowd of people from all parts of Judea and from Jerusalem. So there's some of his own disciples here, some of his own followers, certainly. Uh, But there's also some people, huge crowds of people from all over Israel, according to Luke, not just his own followers in Galilee. So Already at this point in Jesus' ministry, he's attracting attention from all over Israel and from the coastal region of Tyre and Sidon. So these are regions in Phoenicia in the north. They're actually outside of Israel. So even there's some Gentiles coming to see Jesus already. 
Interestingly, these places, Tyre and Sidon, are historically enemies of Israel. You can see that in 1 Maccabees, chapter 5, it's in Isaiah 23, and Ezekiel 26 to 28. So Luke here mentions that the historical enemies of Israel, even they come to see Jesus. He's sort of foreshadowing what's going to happen in the book of Acts, which is the gospel will be opened up to all people, including Gentiles. Now we skip over verse 17 to 19 today, which then says Jesus performs many healings and exorcisms, and it talks about the kind of healings he does. And we're going to skip down now to verse 20 to begin the Sermon on the Plain proper. It's called this because in verse 17, just prior to this, it says Jesus came down with them and stood on a level place. And the Greek word there for level place is sometimes translated plain. Now, there's a few problems with this name, though. And one of the key problems is it's not clear whether the speech that starts here at verse 20 is in fact on the same day as that statement in verse 17 that Jesus went to the plain. This could actually be sometime later. So that's one of the problems with saying that this is a Sermon on the Plain. Now, what we're seeing here, or what's known as the Sermon on the Plain in Luke, is very similar to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5 to 7. But there are some differences, and scholars have often wondered what the best explanation for the differences are. So the differences include Luke's version of the sermon is a whole lot shorter. It only takes half a chapter, whereas Matthew's, it goes over three whole chapters. There's also some distinct differences in the wording of some of the phrases when compared to Matthew's version. Luke lists four Beatitudes and then four woes, and they're all given in the second person, you, directed at you, the crowd. Whereas when Matthew does it, he depicts Jesus on a mountain, giving eight Beatitudes in the third person, blessed are the poor, and he doesn't have any woes. So there are some differences there in that Beatitude list. And then Luke's version occurs after the 12 apostles are chosen, but in Matthew's version, it's before the 12 apostles are chosen. So how can we reconcile these two accounts? Which one is more accurate? There's four main views among scholars. There's probably more than this, but there's four main ones that scholars have proposed. And as Catholics, you're free to accept whichever one of these makes the most sense to you. Now, one view is that these two sermons are the same, that they are the same sermon, they happened on the same day, It's just that Luke has changed some of the words to make it more understandable to his Gentile readers. It appears that Jesus' Sermon on the Mount is quite Jewish, actually. And so Luke has possibly changed some of the words to make it make more sense to his Gentile readers. He's preserved the sense of what Jesus has said in each phrase, but he's made certain words less Jewish. And that is certainly within uh, Orthodox belief about the inspiration of scripture. That is certainly an acceptable explanation because we're not committed to saying the gospel authors recorded word for word what Jesus said. Another theory is that Matthew extended his sermon. So Matthew has the longer version and the way Matthew did that is by adding in things Jesus said at other times in his ministry. If that's right, then Luke actually has the more original account and Matthew has added in extra bits. It could be, the third theory is that Luke and Matthew are drawing on common oral sources about Jesus' sayings, but they both modify them in different ways. So neither Luke nor Matthew has the original. Both of them have arranged some sort of collection of things that Jesus is known to have said. And there is a different theory, which is that Jesus actually spoke the Sermon on the Plain on a different occasion, as in the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain happened on different days at different times. Now, that is possible because Jewish rabbis 
would often repeat sayings and speeches that they say at different times in their ministry. So they'd actually repeat them for effect. And they adapt their presentation of those sayings for different contexts. And that's quite possible. It is, although a lot of scholars don't think that that's right, it is still possible that this is a separate speech to the Sermon on the Mount. Now, in today's reading, we're going to hear the first part of the speech, which has the four Beatitudes in verses 20 to 23. The word Beatitudes basically just means blessings. And then the four woes from verses 24 to 26. And they are the opposite of the four Beatitudes, as we'll see. Let's start by talking about this idea of Beatitudes, because that's the first part of the reading. So the word blessed, as we have it in our translation, in Greek, it's makarios. And in the Beatitudes, it well, the word basically means favoured or happy. So our lectionary actually renders it as happy. And that is a decent translation. Favoured is another good way of putting it. But we're not thinking here of a positive emotional state, and so that's why happy can be misleading. When Jesus says, blessed are you or happy are you, it doesn't mean you're a happy, positive person. It actually means you're in a fortunate situation. That's what blessed means in the Jewish context. In Jewish tradition, and in fact, a lot of the ancient world, beatitudes, it's a funny word for us in English, but beatitudes were a way of speaking, and it involves the form Blessed is the one who does X. That's what a beatitude is. Blessed is the person. If you look at the Old Testament, that appears several times in the Psalms and the wisdom literature. You know, those phrases like, blessed is the man who walks not in the way of sinners. So that is a beatitude. They either commend those who take a certain godly path in life, or they promise future consolation to those who are in affliction. And Jesus is basically doing both elements here. He's going to teach his disciples about certain groups of people who are fortunate or blessed by God and why. So that's the basic background here of Beatitudes as a blessing. On a basic level, how do we interpret what we're about to hear? Well, Jesus is teaching his disciples that the ones who are truly blessed are not those who the world sees as blessed, or even what conventional Jewish wisdom at the time said are blessed, particularly those Uh, the teachings from the Pharisees would say are blessed. So Jesus says, no, those are not the ones who are blessed. He turns it upside down and he says the standards for happiness are actually the opposite. Those who are disadvantaged or seen as disadvantaged by the world are actually in a very favorable position in God's eyes. When his followers live by God's standards, they are truly in a fortunate state of life, no matter what their circumstances may be. And so that's one of the main points he wants them to understand. His disciples might be under the impression that if they're suffering, that they don't have God's favor. Jesus wants to counter that. That's the overall big picture message of the passage. But there's more to say, though, because Jesus is going to attach specific promises to each of the characteristics or the types of people. Now, the best, probably the best way to think about these promises is that they're all basically referring to the same thing. The promises, so things like you'll be comforted, you'll be filled, they're all referring to entering the kingdom of heaven. That's what the promises all refer to. Now, the further question then for us as exegetes is, is Jesus referring to the kingdom of heaven as in in the future that they'll inherit when they die? Or is he talking about things that they already have access to in the present? So you could go either way. If Jesus is referring to present things that these his audience are already experiencing because they're already in the kingdom of God, 
then Jesus is basically saying, you are already happy or you are already blessed because you're already in the kingdom of God. And that would fit. I think it's better, though, to think that here Jesus is referring to the future judgment day. He's telling them about the blessings they will inherit when they get the kingdom of God in its fullness on judgment day. He's saying then that they should consider themselves happy now because of what they one day will receive in the future when they enter the kingdom of God. That probably seems to be the best interpretation because Jesus uses the word shall, or it's like a future tense, you will eventually get these things. But again, there is room for saying that he's talking about present blessings. Let's start at verse 20. It says, fixing his eyes on his disciples. So clearly, this part of the sermon is directed at his disciples, his followers. How happy are you who are poor? Now, in that culture, poor people were considered to be cursed by God, not blessed. Jesus is clearly addressing this to those among his disciples who are poor, and that's probably a lot of them. Because if we look at the economics of the society at the time, most people were poor, in a sense. Now, they weren't desperately poor, but they were poor. There would be days when people would um, not have much money and not have much food. That was actually pretty common in that society. So, Jesus here is talking to his disciples, and many of them would have been poor. The word here for poor is anawim in Greek, and that is a key word in the Gospel of Luke. It's the same word Jesus used earlier in chapter 4 when he did his mission mandate, and he talked about how he's come to bring glad tidings to the poor. Same word. Now, Matthew's version of this, if you look at the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, that has quite a different meaning, doesn't it? There's a question here then about what's the original. Did Jesus say blessed are the poor or blessed are the poor in spirit? There's no easy answer to this. Maybe one of the authors has modified it to make it clearer to his readers. It's not actually easy to solve and scripture scholars debate about what the original reading was. Maybe part of the solution is that in the Old Testament, the word poor came to refer not just to those who were in economic hardship, but also those who are part of the oppressed people of God. So you see that in Psalm 37, Isaiah 10, it's in other places. And so in that case, maybe poor in spirit is essentially equivalent to poor anyway. That's one way of understanding Jesus' words here. Now, another solution, of course, would be to say that these are two separate sermons and Jesus said this on two different occasions. So there's no contradiction here. So Jesus, in this case, in Luke says, happy are you who are poor, yours is the kingdom of heaven. So what's the kingdom of heaven? Well, in Matthew, it's unpacked quite a bit, but basically the kingdom of heaven is where God's will on heaven is carried out on earth. Jesus has come to bring the kingdom of God in its fullness. He's come to show people how they can best fulfill God's will, what God's will looks like. He's he's telling them the commandments they need to follow in order to uh, successfully follow God's will. And in this context, it also refers to the final kingdom of God that will one day be set up on earth. And the hope of all Christians is that they will enter the kingdom of God. So Jesus here teaches that the poor will be part of this kingdom of heaven. And we know from other places in the Gospels that it is much easier for poor people to enter the kingdom. And the key reason for that is because they're not attached to worldly wealth. So it's easier for them to access heavenly realities. Verse 21, the second beatitude, happy are you who are hungry now, you shall be satisfied. And this seems to have the same basic meaning as the one he's already said, which is happier the poor. Well, if you're going hungry, then you're poor. And so the two are clearly connected. He's saying that 
amongst his disciples, there would certainly be people who go hungry regularly. He's saying to them, don't look at this situation like the world does. Just because you're hungry, it doesn't mean that you're cursed. You will be satisfied. If you're hungry, you're more likely to be dependent on God. And so you're more likely to enter the kingdom of God. So that's the sense in which Jesus is promising them the kingdom. We've got to think about how radical this was, because at the time of Jesus, that was not the common wisdom. The common conventional understanding amongst the Jews was that if you're rich, you're blessed by God and you will enter the kingdom. Jesus goes on, happy you who weep now. Now that almost sounds like an oxymoron, doesn't it? Happy are you who weep. It probably refers particularly to those who grieve over wickedness. That's probably the grief Jesus has in mind here. Like Daniel in the Old Testament and Ezra as well are examples of people who grieve for wickedness. He says to them, happy are you who weep, you shall laugh. So those who suffer and mourn as a result of wickedness will one day be comforted by God in the kingdom. This is not teaching that everyone who is sad will get to heaven. That's not the teaching here, although that might sound like it. Uh, to us as 21st century readers, it's a very Jewish way of saying that if you mourn, if you mourn for wickedness, then you will inherit the kingdom of God. It means that Jesus is encouraging his disciples to mourn about wickedness and to have hope that God will one day vindicate them. So he goes on in verse 22, happy are you when people hate you and drive you out. Now, more literally there, it's exclude you. And perhaps this is a hint of or perhaps a reference to being excluded from community worship in the synagogue. Happy are you when people exclude you. So it's like exclude the Jewish person from the community. So Jesus here might be predicting exactly what's going to happen to the Christians in the coming years. They would be excluded from the community because they were considered heretics, basically, for being Christian. But Jesus here says, happy are you when people hate you, abuse you, and denounce your name as criminal. And perhaps a better translation there would be, cast out your name as evil. This is what the Christians in Jesus' age had to look forward to. Many of them were cast out by their own family for being Christian. But Jesus adds this important qualifier, and we need to hear this. Happy are you when people hate you, drive you out, abuse you, denounce your name as criminal, on account of the Son of Man. So Jesus here is not talking about people who have a rough time in life in general. He's talking about people who are persecuted for following God's will as laid out by the Messiah. So those who follow the Messiah's instructions. Jesus knows that his followers are going to be heavily persecuted in the coming years. It's pretty counterintuitive, though, for his original audience. Happy are you when you're cast out and hated by people. But that's Jesus' teaching here. He wants to let them know that they are to expect that kind of thing to happen to them, but to consider themselves blessed or happy when it does happen. Now, notice here that Jesus has a particular emphasis on the name of the Son of Man. He is talking about being persecuted for the Son of Man. And so there's some important teachings here. Obedience to God's law doesn't just mean following the Torah. It now means obedience to the Son of Man. So other rabbis in Jesus' time might encourage persecution for the sake of God or for the Torah. But Jesus here says they're going to be persecuted for the sake of the Son of Man. So Jesus is actually asserting an authority that no prophet or rabbi would ever claim to possess. In fact, it's almost a claim of blasphemy if it's not true. If he's not the Son of God, this is a pretty strong claim. This underscores that part of the Beatitudes, and particularly in Matthew's Gospel, we shouldn't merely look at them as ethical principles of how to live. They're statements about the unique authority of Jesus and what it means to orient your life around the Son of Man. 
Verse 23, rejoice when that day comes and dance for joy, for then your reward will be in heaven. So Jesus again is emphasizing that when his, his followers are persecuted for following him, and in fact they were later on, he says they should be encouraged because a great reward is waiting for them. And we know that later they did do this exact kind of rejoicing, actually. Luke tells us later in Acts chapter 5, verse 41, the apostles left the presence of the Sanhedrin rejoicing that they had been found worthy to suffer dishonor for the sake of the name. So they did experience this kind of joy later in their life. Now, this verse here, um, your reward will be great in heaven, that might imply that some people have more rewards in heaven than others. And that is actually Catholic teaching. Is this verse teaching that, that there's going to be more rewards for certain people in heaven? Possibly. Although it could just refer to the reward of heaven being the reward in view. Jesus goes on, this was the way their ancestors ancestors treated the prophets. Now, notice the word there here, their ancestors treated the prophet. This might suggest that Luke is wanting to distance himself uh, from the Jews here, and that might suggest that Luke himself is not a Jew, because Matthew's version seems to frame it more as your ancestors treated the prophets. So that's a little key here that Luke is thinking particularly of Gentile readers. What's the meaning of the phrase then? This was the way their ancestors treated the prophets. Well, if you know your Old Testament, all throughout Jewish history, good prophets appeared in Israel who were doing God's will, but their message was usually rejected by the leaders at the time. And often the prophets were killed as a result. So Jesus tells his followers that they're actually going to face a similar situation. They will be the ones who are trying to follow God's will, trying to teach others to follow God's will and to proclaim God's truth. And in particular, they're going to be talking about, to follow God's will, you must follow Jesus, the Messiah. But the Jewish leadership in Jesus' day would reject them and persecute them, just as they did to God's holy prophets in the Old Testament. So that's the end of the four Beatitudes. Now, there's still a further question here. Some scholars have wondered, is he being prescriptive or descriptive? As in, is he encouraging them by telling them that they are already blessed, the crowd, or is he sort of telling them to lift the bar. He's telling them what they should do in order to become blessed. So there's a question here about, is he being descriptive about his disciples are already doing this or prescriptive where he's telling them what they do and need to do in order to become his disciples. Either way, the message for us is clearly that we need to be like the Beatitudes in order to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the teaching. Verse 24, Jesus now moves on to the woes, or our translation has it as alas, but woe is probably better there. Woe is a word that appears a lot in the Old Testament, and it's usually associated with God's judgment and impending distress. So woe basically means you're in an unfortunate situation. So it's the opposite of the Beatitudes, isn't it? Because Beatitude means you are fortunate. Woe means you're in an unfortunate situation. Jesus is now going to reverse each of the four Beatitudes that he's just spoken. So he's just said, blessed are the poor. He's now going to say, woe to the rich. Blessed are the hungry is going to become woe to those who have had their fill. Blessed are those who mourn. That's going to become woe to those who laugh. And blessed are those who are persecuted by the world. That is going to become woe to those who the world speaks well of. So let's look at these woes, keeping in mind that Matthew doesn't have these woes. They're only found in Luke's version. Alas for you who are rich, you are having your consolation now, or you have received your consolation. 
Remember, the conventional wisdom in Jesus' time was that rich people are blessed by God so that they would be the ones that would make it into the kingdom. Jesus turns it on its head here and says, in fact, the rich are enjoying the good life now, but in the next life, things will not be so good for them because, well, for most rich people, they're so attached to their riches that they don't turn to God. Remember that Mary actually predicted something like this in the Magnificat in chapter 1 of Luke. Mary says, the rich he has sent away empty. That's in chapter 1, verse 53. Now, this verse does not teach that no rich person can get into heaven. That's, it's not saying that it's impossible. But it does teach that on the whole, it's very hard for rich people to enter the kingdom because they're attached to wealth. And this is something Jesus discusses later in the Gospels. It's hard for a rich person to enter the kingdom, particularly in Jesus' culture because of the massive gap between rich and poor. Verse 25, Alas for you who have had your fill now, you shall go hungry, or you shall hunger. And this seems to be basically equivalent to the previous comment about rich people. Those who are well off in this life, and who always have enough food, who have eaten their fill, they are likely to be attached to worldliness and possessions. It's likely that amongst Jesus' followers, there's many poor and hungry people. But Jesus is saying that they're the ones who are blessed, not those who are rich. They have had their fill, and in the future, they are going to go hungry or hunger. Alas for you who laugh now, you shall mourn and weep. Probably here laughing in the sense of experiencing no sorrow on behalf of wickedness. So showing the wrong response to wickedness, laughing instead. People who do that, who, have, who turn a blind eye to wickedness or who show joy at the wickedness of the world, they will not be part of the kingdom in the next life, so they will weep. Verse 26, Jesus says, Alas for you when the world speaks well of you. You can also translate that, when all men speak well of you. This is interesting, isn't it? Jesus says that if the world speaks well of someone, they're not truly a follower of Christ. So the teaching here is that true followers of Christ will offend people, or certainly in the first century anyway. Because if you were a follower of Christ, most of your family and the rest of the Jewish community would reject you. So if people are speaking well of a person, well then clearly they're not a true Christian. They're not truly proclaiming Jesus. Jesus goes on, this was the way their ancestors treated the false prophets. So Jesus before was talking about how they treated true prophets, and now he says, think about the way they treated false prophets. In the Old Testament, there were these false prophets that would come at various times in history, and they would be the prophets that the Jewish leadership did accept because they were the ones who told the Jews false messages. They said things like, God isn't going to punish you. God is perfectly happy with what you're doing. So they told the Jewish leadership the message they wanted to hear, and they did not encourage them to pursue righteousness and God's will. That's what a false prophet was in the Old Testament. Jesus here says that those who similarly do not reflect God's will and do not encourage others to do the same, they're not true Christians. They're going to be in similar positions to the false prophets, and they are not going to inherit the kingdom. We need to take these words to heart as well. If the world is not challenged by us as Christians, and we're not reminding them of God's standards and of the teachings of the gospel, if we're, if we're well-liked by the world because we never speak of Jesus, well then, Jesus has some pretty strong words for us here. He says that that's not how Christians are supposed to look. So that's all we have in today's text. That's where it finishes at verse 26. The Sermon on the Plain there is going to continue in the next few verses, so we'll look at it in the coming days. 
Let's now look at the Catechism to see where we find these verses referenced. So paragraph 2444 is about love for the poor. The Church's love for the poor is a part of her constant tradition. This love is inspired by the Gospel of the Beatitudes, of the poverty of Jesus, and of his concern for the poor. Love for the poor is even one of the motives for the duty of working, so as to be able to give to those in need. It extends not only to material poverty, but also to the many forms of cultural and religious poverty. So there we hear pretty strong links to the beatitude there of blessed are the poor. Paragraph 2546 and paragraph 2547, this is about poverty of heart. So I'll read out both of those paragraphs, it's quite beautiful actually. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The Beatitudes reveal an order of happiness and grace, of beauty and peace. Jesus celebrates the poor, the joy of the poor to whom the kingdom already belongs. The word speaks of voluntary humility as poverty in spirit. The Apostle gives an example of God's poverty when he says, For your sakes he became poor. The Lord grieves over the rich because they find their consolation in the abundance of goods. Let the proud seek and love earthly kingdoms. But blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Abandonment to the providence of the Father in heaven frees us from anxiety about tomorrow. Trust in God is a preparation for the blessedness of the poor. They shall see God. So this whole section here uh, of the Catechism is a commentary on the blessed are the poor beatitude. So it discusses both the literal blessed are the poor and then Matthew's version of blessed are the poor in spirit. So I'll include both of those sections of the catechism in the show notes. Thanks again for listening. I hope you're learning new things about the gospel of Luke and continue to keep the ministry in prayer and share the podcast with others who you think would benefit from doing an exegesis of scripture.